good morning. I don't have a jacket on because it's Saturday and it's crazy hot in this place because there is no air conditioning on this day. Um, but we are going to be finishing up today the chapter 14 of the, the Gospel of Luke. And so if you will, open your Bibles and head that way. Um, now, four or five years ago, I was asked to be on this city committee that was described to me as you're going to give feedback and brainstorming of ideas for community events. And, and the expectation of that was that it, it would involve a, a lunch meeting, maybe every couple months, and um, just a lot of brainstorming kind of thing. And I was so honored that I was very quick to agree to those terms. I am in, I want to do that. Uh, reality, I found, was, was quite different. You see, meetings were more frequent. I was assigned to do research and go find things. I was, uh, found myself cold calling businesses to see if I could get donations for various events we were doing. And then, and then I'm showing up the day before the event and staying after the event. I no longer got to go to the events with my family. It just became a huge time responsibility uh, and a lot of work. And, and, and I found myself, right, I, I kept saying to myself and probably to Laura as well that had I known this is what joining this committee would cost me, I would not have agreed to do it. And I wonder, I mean, how many of us have experiences like that where what we thought something was going to be was never laid out out front and then the cost of doing so was significantly more than we were willing to pay. Now, the situation or that situation is what Jesus is seeking to prevent with his teachings uh, in this passage that we're looking at today. Because uh, listen, uh, there is a reality within uh, Christendom today, within the church today, that many believe that to follow Jesus makes no difference to their life, except maybe they show up on Sundays occasionally and sit through an hour of church in, in, in the hopes that they're going to be assured that their sins are forgiven. Now, this idea that we're talking about is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer commonly referred to as, as cheap grace. Cheap because it has no impact on our life. It costs us absolutely nothing, no changes at all. And, and that's, that's not what we see Jesus describing when he explains what it means to be one of his disciples. And I know we haven't read the passage yet. You'll see it in a minute. Um, and even before we get there, though, I do want to make clear, we don't earn salvation. We don't. Jesus accomplishes salvation for us on the cross and so we receive it freely but when we do once once Jesus has redeemed us once he has filled us with the Holy Spirit Jesus calls us to a life that is very different that is costly to us in many ways and that's what we're going to see here and so uh, it is fair to say that uh, you know we ought to appreciate that unlike so many others Jesus doesn't bait and switch Jesus doesn't downplay the cost of following him. He's very straightforward with what it means. Um, and so as we're getting through this section, we're going to look at it in four sections again this week. That's two in a row. We've never done four before, and now we've done it two in a row. Anyway, uh, and we're going to be looking at what it means to be Jesus' disciple. Now, but before we start, I know I've said that like eight times now, but before we start, I, I do want to point out one aspect in this. As you're looking at this, this whole segment, these four sections, verses 25 through 35, um, that each of our sections, as we've broken it down, ends with this phrase from Jesus, the same phrase, he cannot be my disciple. You see it there in verses 26, 27, and 33. And, and I want you to see that so you kind of understand the, I guess for your camera, you've got to go this way, the flow of the passage and the way, way it works. Um, and so then let's, let's just jump in. We're reading, uh, starting in Luke 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We're going to stop right there for now. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, help us to make sense out of the words of your son that we have just read and those we will later uh, read as we move forward. We ask that you'd enlighten our minds to understand them and our hearts to embrace what you are teaching us. And, And Lord, to the degree that it is not already so, we ask that you'd please make us true and fully committed disciples. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what in the world's going on here? right? Mom, mom always says, you need to love your sister, you need to love your brother, but here is Jesus saying, if you want to be my disciple, you need to hate your sister, you need to hate your brother, you need to hate your entire family. It's particularly interesting when we realize that Jesus has taught us, and, and many other times, the way we are to love others, right? To, to love others as he has loved us in John 13, 34, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, we see in Matthew 22, 30, 39. To, even to love our enemies, right? We saw back in Luke 6, 27. In fact, Jesus never tells us to hate people except right here. And so what in the world is going on? Now, We must always understand that God's word does not contradict itself. There are times like this where it might look like it does, but it simply does not. You see, Jesus is not going against his own teaching, and he's not asking us to violate the fifth commandment, to honor your mother and your father, right? Forget that. Let's let's just hate everybody now. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What what Jesus is doing here is, is a form of just shocking hyperbole. You see, sometimes in scripture, when we see the word hate, It means what we think of the word, right? To detest something or someone. At other times, it's just a way of making a huge emphasis. That's what we're seeing here. But but let me show you that from somewhere else. I I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 29 real quick, if you've got your Bible with you. Uh, First book in the entire Bible, so that makes it easy to get to. I wasn't sure how much time it would take me to actually turn over here. So 29, um, verse Chapter 29, verse 30. So Jacob, uh, it says here that, 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 so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, okay? What's it say? He loved Rachel more than Leah. Now look at the very next verse. You're going to have to pop down to the next paragraph, right? Uh, In verse 31, Moses is the author here, and he's describing the same situation, and and how's he say it? He says, the Lord saw that Leah was hated, that she was hated. In the first one, right, um, it says that he loved one more than the other one. The other one, it says is that he's hated. You, you know the rest of the story too, or maybe you do. Jacob doesn't hate Leah, not in the sense that we often use it, uh, but Jacob certainly loves Rachel more than Leah. That is said many times after this. We see it in the way the behavior, uh, and, and that's the sense that we see here in Genesis 29. That's the sense that Jesus is using this, this word hate in our passage today, and so Jesus is telling us now, to be my disciple, you must love me more than your own father, more than your mother, more than your brothers and sisters, yes, even more than your own life. You see, being Jesus' disciple means loving him so unreservedly that all other loves seem like hatred in comparison. 
Or as uh, Thomas Boston, the 17th century Scottish theologian said, or explains it, he says, Jesus means no man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. And so now you get this. Jesus is saying in, in one sense, there is a chance that devotion to your family, right? These people you love will we'll come to this split in the road and, and go two ways where, where following Jesus is going to lead you one way and following your family is going to lead you another way. And he's saying, if it comes to that, you, you must follow Jesus if you're to be his disciple, even if that means your family goes down the other path. It, it, it's a call for us <clears throat> to hold on to Jesus more than we hold on to anything else at all. Years ago, I explained this to Laura by saying this. When, when you're holding uh, baby Berkeley, you know, she's too, well, she's not too big to be held. She still gets held. But when you're holding baby Berkeley with one hand and you've got a plate of food in your, in your other hand, at, at the moment that you stumble, right, and you begin to fall and you know you're going to have to somehow brace yourself, at, at that moment, you're going to hold on to what's most important to you. You're going to hold on to what you love the most, which means you let go of the food and hold on to baby Berkeley. I hope. Uh, right? You all know that. You hold on to the child because it has so much greater value. That's, that's the same that's true here. You must hold on to Christ no matter what. You must hold on to the gospel. You must hold on to what really matters. Now, God willing, this is not going to come into play in your family, or at least not very often, but, but if your family is asking you to sin, you, you know what to do. You follow Jesus. And any claims that our families might make on us must, must never override the claims that Christ makes on, on our lives. And for some, that, here's what it might look like. For some, it might look like when you're coming to faith in Christ and, you, and your family has a history of uh, following Islam and suddenly you are such an outsider going against your family, it, it might mean that, that you do, you go and you get baptized and you follow Jesus no matter what the cost is. For, for others, it might be very different. In fact, for most of us, it's probably going to look something like resisting the pressure um, to, to pursue your family's view of what a successful life is. Here's what I want for you in your life. And following Jesus might take you somewhere different. And, and so Jesus then says, if, if I'm not your highest priority, you might like me, you might be interested in me, but you cannot be my disciple. You cannot. Okay. So our second section then, which is just one verse in our, our passage, here Jesus gives another criteria for being a true disciple. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Or, or to put it positively, I find it easier sometimes to switch it around. To, to be my disciple, you must carry your cross. And it raises this question, what in the world would the disciples actually, the disciples at his time, right, uh, what would they have thought when they hear this phrase? Because Jesus hadn't even been crucified yet. And, and, and to be truthful, or really just to explain this, they, they still would have known what, what it meant to, to carry a cross, right? They would have known this is a, a symbol of humiliation and rejection, a symbol of, of pain and death. And you, you see, because Jesus isn't the only person who was ever asked to literally carry his cross to the point of crucifixion. Uh, many criminals were expected to do that. It wouldn't have been totally uncommon for them to see other people carrying a beam on their back on their way to be crucified. And everyone knew as they went by, there goes someone on a way to a terrible death, painful death. And, and that's Jesus' point. 
the, the cross reminds us that we have given up any and all claims to our lives. It reminds us that if we're to follow Jesus, there will be deep joy, there will be eternal hope, but there will also very likely be suffering that we suffer. That was redundant, but you understand, I hope. Um, now, now keep in mind, unlike the first disciples, unlike us, the first disciples did not have the First Amendment rights to stand upon. Instead of the First Amendment, they get guys like the Emperor Nero who says, you know what, I'm going to turn Christians into torches to light up my, my garden, really just despite them. And the point is, Jesus wants us to be prepared for suffering. He, you know, not, not just suffering that's a result of sin in the world that we, we come to understand that, that everyone's going to suffer, right? Things like cancer and accidents and pandemics and, and things of that nature, but suffering specifically because we belong to Jesus, specifically because we're his disciples and following him and living the way that he leads us to live, right? Because we're his disciples and that, and that means sometimes that our, our, our plans for life will have to be given up. The, the whole concept is just weird to us. I, I know as Americans, I, I'll never forget, I might have shared in a sermon, I know I've shared it in small groups before, but one of my friends uh, during seminary spent a semester in China making disciples, and, and late one evening, he asked a group of uh, high school age Chinese believers this common question we ask all the time, right? What, what do you want to be? And, and there was this great confusion between him. And, 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 they, and so he asked him again, like, like, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a teacher? Do you want to be a doctor? What do you want to be in your life? And they said, oh, well, we just, we just want to be used for Jesus. We want to tell others about the gospel. We want to worship God. We want to do whatever we can to glorify God and, and build his kingdom. That was their answer as high school students that were following Christ. He learned later that... Um, that they knew that at any moment someone could come into their meetings and, and carry them off. And all their plans they've been making, because they're gathering the worship, all their plans could be absolutely worthless at that point. And that didn't scare them. In fact, uh, a few weeks later, uh, they were meeting together as a, a group worshiping the Lord when some governor and official, uh, officials entered into the meeting place and, and most of the people ran. And, and throughout all that, two men were eventually taken into custody uh, and last I asked about it, they still don't know what happened to, they, to those men. They don't know if they got locked up, if there was some death penalty, if they were released and are just staying off the grid. They don't know what happened to them. But what always amazed me was it, it didn't stop them from, from meeting to worship the Lord together. You see, they, they daily carry their cross as disciples of Jesus. And I can't help but wonder if that's the reason we as Americans are always asking this, you know, what, rather, why they're asking the question, how can my life be used for the glory of God? And we're still asking this question, what do I want to be? And again, it's not a terrible question, but it tends to be the only one we're ever asking. And so bearing a cross will, will certainly look different in our culture than it does in China and I don't tell you that for you to feel guilty. Don't feel any guilt. This is where the Lord's placed you. This is the culture he's asked you to, to bear your cross in. Uh, and so for us, it, it might look different. It might be simply that we are treated like weirdos at school or at work simply because of our faith. And that's okay. It really is. It, it may be that we're excluded because your views on abortion or other moral issues uh, put you at odds with people. And so they simply exclude you. Right? People don't en enjoy that if your views aren't matching with the current mainstream views or, or culture or media. Uh, 
It might mean that bearing your, your, your cross may leave you out of a party or a conversation simply because uh, your evident faith in, in Jesus is going to make that conversation awkward, right? So bearing our, our cross might even cost us something or, or someone we love. If you've ever heard the story of Rosario Butterfield, a great book, if you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to, to read it. Um, but if you've read her story or heard her story, you've heard her say that becoming a disciple of Jesus cost her a very dear relationship. And the Lord has given her strength uh, and the Lord has also given her new joys through that, but it cost her something. She understands that. And so then what we see in verse 27 is that the cross-bearing disciple is the only genuine disciple of Jesus. And that means following Jesus is this, this whole life commitment. And he's very clear that's what the expectation is. Or as, as Bonhoeffer once wrote, when, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In our third section, Jesus gives two examples or analogies encouraging all who consider to be his disciple to count the cost of such a commitment. Let's, let's read it. Um, I'm going to read it from here because saving some time. Uh, verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is, and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and he was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will, sit down, uh, will not sit down and first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks the, for terms of peace. So therefore... Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And, and so the first analogy here is a construction analogy. When you're building something, have you really considered how much it's going to cost to finish the entire building, right? Uh, now, if you follow the, the local construction of the, the in-bath facility, the one they're building over by the football stadium, uh, you might know that the original budget for that was $440 million. That was beginning to end what they were going to spend on that. But uh, what ended up happening was later they discovered, or, or finally someone must have missed this, they, they realized that... Um, well, they didn't properly count the cost of the building. They, they failed to consider that it was being built in Tornado Alley. And, and this is a facility that needs to be a bit more secure than your average building because it's going to be housing uh, a bunch of biohazards that it's important do not leak out into the community. I mean, can you imagine the damage a virus might actually do to the world if it were to leak out? I guess, guess we can. Okay, so the new cost of this facility is $1.25 billion, almost three times the original budget, uh, and, and yet they have the money, right? They are able to complete this building. It will get finished. That's great. The analogy that Jesus gives is more like the buildings that, that I remember seeing when driving across Mexico. It seemed like constantly you would see another one where there's a cement foundation and, and maybe there's some cinder blocks on one side or two sides or something like that, but it's clearly abandoned. Clearly no one's going to finish it. And, and why? Because they simply didn't consider how much money it was going to cost to finish it. They didn't begin with what they needed to finish. And, and so Jesus wants people to know what it will cost us before we commit our lives to following him. Because remember, he's talking to this, this big crowd that's what he's making sure he makes clear before these people commit to that. Now, the second example Jesus gives uh, also warns us about the cost. Uh, but here the issue is what will it cost us 
if we are not a disciple of Jesus, it turns it around a little bit, right? It's, in this analogy, we're looking at it from the, uh, from the perspective of the king, but it's the king who's the weaker king, the king who cannot possibly win this war. Uh, and, and so the wise move for him is to seek peace. And so we see, right, the first example, have we, uh, we have, considered, uh, have we considered the cost of following Jesus? And in the second example, it's asking, can we afford not to follow Jesus? And of course, we can't. That, that's the point of the analogy, right? You, he, once he's done the math, he knows, I, I need to go and make peace with this king. For, for to not do so would be utter destruction, and then in verse 33, we, we see that word therefore, right? Which is always giving us a conclusion. Because of this, yada, yada, this is what happens. Uh, and, and it's the conclusion of these two examples. And he says this, thus, after considering the cost of following Jesus, and since it would lead to destruction if we don't, uh, become disciples, right? And, and then Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And again, to switch it around positive because it makes it easier to understand. To be my disciple, you must renounce all that you have. Now, to renounce, uh, again, doesn't mean what we tend to always think, right? It doesn't mean that you necessarily need to go leave here today or, you know, leave your house and uh, go and, you know, sell your house and your car and your, your clothes and, you know, give your phone away and get rid of everything. And so you're just, you know, living in a t-shirt and shorts like a hermit down along the, the border of the Kansas River. Don't, don't do that, right? It, what he's talking about is that we, we give up any claim we have to this stuff as if it's my stuff. Right? And, and this might mean that we, we learn to properly view our wealth, that we learn to properly view our possessions as belonging to the, the Lord and, and thus available to us to be used for his glory, to be used for his purposes. And I know we, we, we know this, we hear this all the time from, from the word, but how different would we spend our money, actually spend our money if we really thought of it this way? That's a question for you to think about. Now, in short, the, the gospel message here we're seeing through all this is, is this call to, to value everything as worthless compared to Jesus. If you really want to bring it down to what we're talking about, right? Uh, again, to quote Bonhoeffer, because he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, it makes a lot of sense that we're going to have a lot of Bonhoeffer in this. But he says this, besides Jesus, nothing has any significance. He, Jesus, alone matters. And that's exactly what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. You, you might remember in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8, he, he says this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, trash. Uh, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what's the application of all this, right? The application is going to be very different for all of us. Um, and, and so if you want to really apply this teaching of our Lord to your life, you're going to have to think about and discuss this further. And, and God willing, hopefully today after you watch this, you'll find someone uh, to discuss these things with you. First, ask this, what does it look like in day-to-day -day life for me to love Jesus more than my family and stuff? Second, Ask this, how should I be prepared to carry a cross of suffering because I follow Jesus? What, what sort of crosses of suffering am I to expect? Uh, a third question, ask this, what is the hardest thing in your life for you to renounce? That's the hardest thing to just to let go of 
and, and just know it belongs to the Lord. And so the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, uh, again, is not one of effort. It's really not. If you think so, you're really getting confused here. It's, it's not a payment of good works, but rather it's a reorientation of what we, what we value, what's important to us, what's our priorities. And uh, it's an understanding that we're not, we're not going to fit in the world around us because we follow Jesus. It's an understanding that we might even suffer in this life simply because we do follow Jesus. And still... It's worth it. it. It's worth everything. It just is. Because we'd, we'd rather be rejected by the world and warmly accepted into the family and the kingdom of the Lord. We really would. And, and remember this, right? That the Savior who calls us to do this, as Philip Ryken says, is, is the very Savior who counted the cost of his own obedience. Jesus knew that he would be betrayed. He knew that he would suffer and die a God-forsaken death. Long before he ever went to the cross, Jesus had counted the cost and determined that he would pay it for our salvation. He's not asking us to do something he hasn't done himself. Now it seems that this would be a good place to end the sermon, right? And it would be, but we've still got these two more verses that we're going to read. And uh, Uh, So we're going to do that, right? So after listing all these requirements, or rather these three requirements for being a true disciple of his, Jesus now teaches us that our lives uh, will not be useful for his purposes if we aren't true disciples, right? That's the point of what we're about to read here. Verses 34 and 35. Listen, uh, Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that last phrase is just a a phrase that was commonly used then to get people's attention, right? Pay attention to what I just said. But what I expect is the bigger question here that you might be wondering is, how in the world can salt lose its saltiness, right? Because salt is salt. If it loses its saltiness, what's what's left? It's, It's gone, right? Now, Remember, this is before purified salt like we have on our tables. It's before we had pink Himalayan salt that we, uh, you know, the trendy salt that we might have on our tables. Salt at this time was this impure chemical compound. What, the, what would happen is they, uh, the common way to do it was to take salt out of the Dead Sea, incredibly salty place, and then let that water evaporate. And what was left after that was, was sodium chloride, which is salt, mixed with a bunch of other crystals of random minerals and whatnot, uh, which meant what they called salt uh, could actually get wet and would wash away the sodium chloride, leaving you a bunch of all the other crystally stuff that was not salt. And, and the whole point is the stuff that remained is of no use to you for preserving things or, or for flavoring things, which were the two main uses of salt at this time. In other words, it becomes useless. Now, 10 years ago, Travis Shanahan took a brand new iPhone. Remember, 10 years ago, they were pretty brand new in general. Uh, and he installed an OS on it called Ubuntu. And I can never forget when he, when he told me afterwards what he did, he said, uh, and I asked him, well, how is it? And he said, well, it's great, but it no longer makes phone calls. And I just laughed my head off because he had this incredibly nice brand new iPhone that he turned into an iPod with his fancy new software. Now, here's where it comes around to this. It had lost its phoniness, like saltiness, such that it was no longer a phone at all. And in fact, it was of no use for making calls, no use at all for what it was originally meant for. It, it couldn't even be called a phone anymore. Uh, I think he called it his, his 
Ubuntu pod or something like that. Uh, anyway, the, the same thing's going on in the analogy that Jesus gives here with the salt, right? To, that, that, that salt has to be salty to actually be salt. And here's where it comes around to being a disciple. Because also a disciple has to be what Jesus has just explained to us a disciple is if we're to be a true disciple of Jesus. And, and if we're not true disciples, if we have... If we, if we lack discipleness, right, like saltiness, our lives will be of no use for the kingdom. That's what he's saying. Which again, this leads us to that important question, am I salty? And not in the way we tend to use it as a slang term today. Uh, you know, are we salty in the way that Jesus uses it? In other words, do, do I match the description that Jesus gives us of a disciple? And if not, what, what changes do I need to pray for and seek after in the power of the Holy Spirit in my life so that I am? And, and, and that's where we, we kind of end. Now, before we finish or pray, though, I do want to say this. One thing we're going to start trying to do is to have some questions that come from the sermon and other ones that come from outside the sermon. And we're going to post them on the front page of the website, just below where the audio usually is, I think is the plan. Uh, that, that you have them easily to get back to so you don't have to remember them. Uh, but we want you to take these and use these as discussion pieces and, and really mean this because when you sit and you listen, you get one, one aspect of it. But, but when we're actually able to sit down and, and think back through the passage we, we just learned and just, just sat under the preaching of and ask some questions about how this applies, that, that's where we really believe that, that we're going to be seeing greater discipleship happen. And so I encourage you to do that and that'll be there uh, Saturday sometime after the service, usually by noon, 12.30, something like that. Um, anyway, let's, let's pray. Lord, you make very clear that following you will create a life that is very different than had we not been redeemed by Christ, had we not followed you. It changes our priorities, it changes our loyalties, and it changes how we go about each and every, every day. So Father, help us to embrace this change, knowing how much it has gained for us both now and for all of eternity. Lord, would you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful Lord's Day.